Hello and welcome to the Spotlight Podcast. I'm Christina Kerr, the Content Manager at Spotlight, and today we have a very special episode talking to the inimitable Esther Charkham. Esther has done so many things in this industry, it's tough to introduce her, but as a taste, she started out as an actress before becoming a casting director. She casts TV series such as The Professionals and the Oscar-winning Chariots of Fire. She then produced TV, she formed her own production company, and has worked with several leading drama training institutions, including Guildhall, Central, and the National Youth Theatre. She has her own agency, Esther Charkham Associates, as well as her own theatre school. She's been awarded an honorary degree by Guildhall for her work with students. And in her bio, she says the key to her success has been getting up early, answering the phone after two rings, and wands of mascara. Today we talk with Esther about all of these different things that she's done and about all the facets of industry you could get involved in as well. All in all, it's a great discussion about how you can have a long and happy career in what is a really tough business. Take a listen. Esther, thank you so much for joining us on the Spotlight Podcast. You're very welcome. I want to start by asking you, you've obviously done a lot in this industry. You've held many different titles over the years. I want to start with where it all began and why you were even excited by this industry in the first place? It actually started at the Golders Green Hippodrome in about 1951 when my mother took me to see a pantomime with Arthur Askey and it was the red velvet curtain and the gold all around it and I became entranced with what the family then called red and gold fever. I was stage struck from that age onwards. I used to do garage recitals, play the lead in school plays get all the local children together to be in one of my shows. Uh, I used to cast library books and got into trouble for defacing library books because I would write the names of actors and actresses that I'd cut out of the Radio Times into the library books by the name of their character. Um, and so I was obsessed from the minute I could walk and talk, really. So it's so that's why I've done everything, and that's why still at this very old age. I'm still entranced by it and I still love it and it still excites me and it still gives me goosebumps and wonderful gut instinct. Absolutely. It's clearly a a lifelong passion. It is. And I want to ask you then, you started by training, well not sorry, not training, but you started as an actress. I did. Can you tell me a bit more about why you chose that as the way in? Well, I didn't choose it. It's what I wanted to do and thought I wanted to do. And I joined the National Youth Theatre and I was in a very successful play called Zigazagger in 1967, which was a huge success. In spite of the fact that I was 16 or 17, I played um, a 40-year-old tart with a wig (laughs) and a miniskirt. And uh, it was a huge success. And I was still at school, but a a West End producer said he liked it very much and he wanted to take it to the West End and he took two of the boys and me. And so I left school and went into the West End and it lasted two weeks and suddenly I had no education and no job. But I didn't let it deter me and I soldiered on and I found an agent and I began to get work as an actress, although most of it was fat Jewish girls or (laughs) tarts with hearts. Um, And then I fell into a job accidentally by answering an ad in the stage uh, for um, a fantastically scary woman called Muriel Cole, who Mm. was the head of casting at the newly formed Yorkshire Television. She had been at Rediffusion and before that she'd been the casting director at Ealing Studios and she really was formidable. 
Actually, her archive is at the V&A. Oh, okay. Um, and she took me on, God knows why, as her <laughs> secretary, and she taught me a huge amount. And I stayed there for a bit, and then somebody told me that they were doing a new play at The Mermaid and they needed a fat Jewish girl to play the lead. So I forced my way into the director's office and they offered me the job, so I left Yorkshire Television. Um, I then used to go back as a temp as well, which was great. Um, and then I went to... It's a mishmash now, it's also many years ago, <laughs> but I worked for an American film producer. I worked for the William Morris office, mm -hmm. very early days. The esteemed agent, Duncan Heath, and I used to sort mail. We'd get in very early in the morning, 8.30 in the morning, so that we could open the mail, because in those days yes. you had mail. Um, all the agents had their own pigeon boxes, and we would open the mail, and we would read it, so that Duncan and I knew everything that was going on. And it's that kind of knowledge and attention to detail that gets you on in this business uh, without being too pushy although apparently I was pushy because I was known as Eve Harrington, who is, of course, <laughs> you know, the character in All About Eve, who was apparently Assertive, pushy. very yeah, assertive. Assertive, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then I went to what then was CMA but became ICM, um, and then from there I went to work for a Broadway producer called Alexander H. Cohen, who had mm. an office at the Schubert Theatre and an office at the Queen's Theatre in London. And he was like a second father to me, and he and his wife, Hilde Parks, taught me so much about the business, about how not to behave, how to behave, how to be gracious, what the, the courtesy of it all, which I'd never really learnt before. Um, and after about three or four years there, he decided to close the London office, but he gave it to me rent-free for a year and said, do what you do best, cast. So I set up as a freelance casting director, and it was a bit scary because you had to be a member of a union then, and right. I wasn't a member. But I did eventually get to be a member of it and ended up being chairperson of that section of the union. Um, and then worked for some years, very lucky in the, in the late 70s, I cast things like Scum, Quadrophenia, Chariots of Fire. So my reputation was gained on finding young people, people who had never really done very much before. Um, and so that's always remained my interest, is, is young people or new talent. And I did Chariots of Fire, which, of course, won the Oscar. And I remember a lovely agent called James Sharkey, who left us only last year, called me the morning it, after it won the Oscar and said, you can double your price now. <laughs> so I did. That's and a good was call. Right. Absolutely. <sighs> And I worked, oh, I did lots and lots of stuff. I did teleseries. I used to yes. do The Professionals. And then I was doing something called Robin of Sherwood. Um, and the producer, Paul Knight, said to me after the first series, I'm not going to do this anymore. You can do it. And I said, no, I can't. And he said, yes, you can. I said, I can't be a producer. And he said, yes, of course you can be a producer. You interfere in everything. So you <laughs> might natural. as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you might as well take over here. So I did. And that was very successful. And I then went to Central Television and took uh, Boone with Michael Elphick, Neil Morrissey, Amanda Burton, David Dacre. And I ran with that for a bit. And then... Uh, Marks and Gran, who were two writers who I'd known as when we were kind of growing up, um, formed a production company and they asked me to go and run it. And from there we did Birds of a Feather, Nightingales, Love Hurts, a whole load of other stuff. And then when I left there, I formed my own company and I made all kinds of programs. I made documentaries, I made daytime, I made lifestyle programs. Um, and then I just... 
almost had enough. I did go back and do a One Foot in the Grave Christmas special, for which we won a comedy award for, and then I did the very first uh, pop music show, long before S Club, which was called uh, No Sweat, with a band called... Man, not a boy. No, that was the song. Oh, I can't remember what they were called. Anyway, <laughs> that was very successful. And then in about early 2000s, I just lost my oomph, didn't quite know what to do, didn't want to keep going away from home either. Right. So I decided to start a theatre school. In between all of this, in all of my downtime, I had always gone into drama schools and lectured and taught yes. and directed shows and all of that, again, working with new talent and yeah. with new writing talent as well. I, I should say that, I mean, I gave Anthony Horowitz his very first television commission. Wow, that's incredible. I know, which is lovely. And he still tweets me. And he actually <laughs> tweeted me because his son is 30 and he tweeted me last week and said, can you believe this? That's the age I was when I met you first, which is, you know, it's lovely. Um, it just seems like you've always had a knack for knowing the right sorts of people and kind of being involved in all these different types of aspects of the industry and different skills required. It's my passion. Absolutely, and yeah. that comes across. Yeah. I just wonder, backtracking for a second, you, you moved into casting, but, but what was it about casting that you thought would be a better way to use some of your skills as opposed to acting? I had a fantastic memory. There weren't a lot of jobs for fat Jewish girls. <laughs> Although, the, interestingly, there are much more now. Um, uh, because it was the late 60s, early 70s, and right. either, you know, you looked like Jane Asher or Patty Boyd or, you know, you didn't. Um, and uh, I had... Because I could always remember the names of the actors, uh, it was... And when I... Every time I read a book, I would write the name of the character in a book and write the name of an actor alongside it, which is the defacing library book thing, that right. I just... <laughs> It seemed to me, the word is organic, really. Yeah. But Muriel Cole had such specific methods that were her attention to detail and order. She kept, I mean, people would laugh at it now, she had long, long, long filing boxes with those little filing cards. And every time she saw an actor, I would type on it uh, his name, I have to roll it into the, the typewriter, his surname in caps, then his first name, and then underneath what the play was, what the theatre was, what the role was, and what the year was. So that actors that she'd seen lots of times had these, had, you know, the card was full and you'd have to turn it over. And so she would always go to it. And then she had every play that she saw, she kept... Uh, the programme, and she wrote a theatre review and she made all of us write theatre reviews of each actor, of what we thought of them, and these would be filed year by year by year. And so you would, she'd say, oh, have I ever seen him? Oh, go and look in the record card. So you'd look in the record card and you'd say, I don't know, um, Ian McKellen, uh, Edward the Second, 1972. And so you would then go to the 1972 year and you'd get out... Um, Edward Edward II and you'd look up Ian McKellen and she'd say, oh yes, he's very good, he's very... Uh. And so you wow. knew all of those things and those were, I mean, now of course you can do all of that online but of it was a very... It's meticulous record keeping Absolutely there. meticulous record keeping mm. and that's what the V&A have. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I was talking to some people on Sunday we thought we might see if we can get it out and ask them if we can do a lecture on how casting used to be done. Well, that'd be really fascinating. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Because there's three or four of us who were, you know, worked for her 
um, who were around still and laugh about it a lot because <laughs> she was scary. But anyway, so that's and that then, part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Does all of that, all of those skills, the sort of meticulous quality of how she taught you to be as a casting director does that then influence how you are as a tv producer absolutely absolutely the attention to detail there and i'm thrilled to say that i taught a lot of people Mm. how to do that as well yeah attention to detail we never miss the detail every that you know that the toilets were always there the lunch was always there the timings were always there the editors were always there the films always went to rushes it's it is I get excited by attention to detail. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can really see that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's a really interesting and important thing to mention because what I'm hoping we can kind of get at today in our podcast is as much as possible that it is up to the actor, not just to be an actor, but also to think about the industry and their place in it. Um, and all these skills that you're touching on, the, the meticulous quality or the passion or yeah. any of these things, can apply to anyone. They don't have to be a TV producer tomorrow. No. They can still use all of those qualities. I nag my clients because I can go online onto Spotlight and I can update their CV and I can update their showreel and I can edit their showreel. But all of the time that me and the other agents in the office are doing that means we're not out there looking for work for them. Right, of course. And, you know, sometimes you take on a new client and they say, yes, I've got a showreel, and they put it up on Spotlight and then you look at it and they've got the old agent's name on it. And it's mm. like, Come on. Yes, it has to be up to date. Yeah, Come on. <laughs> everything, everything has to be up to date. You know, so, an actor friend came to me last week Uh, no names, no pack drill, (laughs) saying, will you look at my CV on Spotlight? And I did. And it was pages and pages long with no dates on it, no updating. His headshots were out of date. And I said, you know, yes, this is down to you, but it's down to your agent as well. And you need to get together and sort this out because people are just going to skim it because there's no detail there. Mm hmm. Well, that might be a good place for us to kind of dig in for a second. Okay. Um, In terms of what that relationship should really be like between an actor and their agent, we obviously, I mean, it's our number one question that we get from our members and non-members alike, how do I get an agent? And I think that question becomes so overwhelming that once someone actually does get representation, they're not really sure what comes next. I know. What do you think about that? It's down to the agent, really, in the first discussion that they ever have with the potential client um, about what they do and how they do it. We are quite specific. We give them, God bless them, a set of rules of what we do, how we do it. We have a fabulous um, system called Tagmin, which I'm sure you know about, which links Mm -hmm. to Spotlight. Um, And the number of times they don't tell us when they have a dentist's appointment or a doctor's appointment or it's a wedding or they're going to be bridesmaid. And we check it and we put them up for a job and then, you know, they're not not free because they haven't put it on. Or they just put it on and they don't tell us. So you have to do it from both ends. You have to have access to your tagmin or whatever other system you use. Put on the dates you're not available. And then just send a little email or a phone call saying, by the way, I'm going to Portugal on Friday and I won't be back till Tuesday. Lovely. We know that then. The other thing is keeping their CVs up to date. They must keep their CVs up to date. We can do it, but it takes us away from From the other work, from the other staff. Mm. Yeah. Um, We expect them to return calls within a day. We expect them to have... um, You'd be amazed how many youngsters don't have answering machines on voicemails on their 
on their mobile phones takes my breath away. You know, and I want to say, darling, can you call me now, please? <laughs> Not have to keep phoning it to have it ring out and then say, oh, I had a missed call. Was it from you? So, you know, that is a really important thing. We expect them to always be on time. Mm-hmm. Um, and many youngsters aren't. And when they say, oh, the traffic was bad or the trains were full, you know it's 10 o'clock in the morning that you're supposed to be there. You know it's rush hour. You need to go half an hour earlier. I don't care if you're waiting out in the street for 20 minutes. You can get a cup of coffee and wait, but as long as you're on time. So it's it's actually old-fashioned courtesy. Absolutely. Really. Lots which of is common a, etiquette Yeah, which points. is about being professional. Yeah. Totally. All those kinds of things. Um, and we try and guide and advise. And our agency always says... Are you interested in this? Right. And if they say no, we say fine, because whatever decision they make, we support that decision. Now, there are some agents, I know because I've heard it, who say, you are going for this, you are going for that, you will do this, you will do that. I don't believe in that. I, I think that it has to be free choice and you have to work together to decide what direction you're going in as a client and agent. Um, yeah, there's a reciprocal arrangement Absolutely. There. I do tell them off. <laughs> I told, gave somebody, an 18-year-old, a really strict telling off yesterday mm-hmm. and said, you know, you're just not behaving professionally. I know you've got exams. You need to tell us when the exams are. Then we can work around it. Um, so it's, it's that kind of thing, really. Um, yeah, a lot of sort of basic things that you would know doing any professional job, exactly, really. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, the, you know, it's not rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> it's work. Can you tell us a bit more about the ethos of your agency and how you tend to work? Um, well, it's interesting because I always say, or I used to say, oh, darling, it's not about the money, it's about the work. But the other agents, young agents who work with me say, no, it should be about the money as well. Uh, <laughs> we can't let people work for nothing. And of course, of course, we can't let people work for nothing. But and we are very strict about it being minimums or profit share or that kind of stuff. But because I've been around so long, my instinct tells me what the quality of the project is, what the quality of the people concerned with it are. And if they they send us misspelled and miss and bad grammar emails, yes. God, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? We kind of know that we right. don't want to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, we guide, we nurture, sometimes we lead, sometimes we don't. Um, I had a, a client recently who had never done panto and had been offered a big panto uh, in a a prestigious theatre out Mm -hmm. of town a long run terribly good money um not one of these starry ones but you know a proper old-fashioned one and he'd never done it and he didn't want to do it and i said i think at this stage in your career it's something you should do it Mm -hmm. will take you out of london for four months it will pay you very well it will be very hard work, the kind of work that you have never done before. Uh, you will meet other people. You will work with a really up-and-coming creative artistic director in a very classy theatre, and I think you should do it. And if you don't like it after that, then I swear I will never make you do it again. And he did it, and he had trouble with it, and he said, I'm really not enjoying it. And I said, well, you know, it finishes on January the 13th or whatever it is. Right. You can get there, and you can just look at the dollar signs in your eyes when your pay slip comes every Friday, and you know that you've been there, you've done it, and you don't have to do it again, and I promise I won't ever make you do it again. But you need that experience and that stretching to know 
that you don't want to do it again. Right, of course. So, um, and, you know, and that it was an interesting experience for both of us because I thought he was going to love it. Right, right. And he didn't, really. But you both take something away from absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, time. well, he's a grown-up, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes you need to be pushed to take a risk and sometimes you need to know when to pull back. Exactly, right. exactly. And we work, I have to say, we work with our gut. We work on instinct. Um, totally. And I, you know, it's, it's a creative industry. It at the is. End of the day. It is. It and has to be organic and with your gut. Otherwise, you can't do it. Um, and I'm. I would hope that everybody else in the business does, but I don't know. I guess it varies. Yeah, it does. I want to go back to something you were saying before about finding new talent and about that in particular yeah. being sort of so key to what you do. How do you like to find new talent? Are you happy when people invite you to things? Do I'm, you watch a lot? I'm very happy when people invite me to things. I hate this time of year because it's <laughs> every single solitary showcase from every drama school. And I think there are too many drama schools. I think there are too many drama schools who are all accredited, who take too much money from too many youngsters who maybe do not have quite as much talent as they should have. Um, and are going to end up with a degree which qualifies them to do very little other than maybe go into marketing or go and teach. Well, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but they have such ideas and such passion. When I used to, I taught contextual studies at a drama school for 10 years, every Wednesday, three hours, every Wednesday, contextual studies. And I used to say to each year, and I went in, um, I want you all to know that in 10 years' time, only two of you will be working. Mm. Now, I know you're all looking around the room and thinking, I wonder who the other one will be. <laughs> and I'm right. Mm. I mean, some have become writers, some have become directors, some have become cameramen, right. some have, you know, sort of done all kinds of, of different things. But actually, as working actors, making a living, getting whatever that minimum equity wage is, probably only two or three from every year I've ever taught. And that goes back years, you know, to years when I used, you know, I started at Guildhall. I used to teach at Guildhall. Mm -hmm. um, and I still see some of my, you know, my first intake at Guildhall. And, some, you know, uh, one of them is head of voice at Central. Right. Um, one of them is a very successful novelist and playwright. Um, one of them is a voiceover agent. Um, one of them is a very successful... Um, she founded this um, arts club thing. So, you know, they're all There's still within it, but yeah. actually who's acting? Right, exactly. You know? I think that's one thing that we've tried to focus on a lot Um with a lot of our videos and podcasts is the fact that it does pay to have multiple skills. It does. And not only that, but also to hone your hobbies yeah. and your interests outside of acting. Um, what would you say to that? Do you think it's vital that actors don't just focus in? I think it's absolutely vital. My parents used to say to me, oh, God, why can't you get a proper job? <laughs> um, which, you know, I'm quite sure parents still do. Uh, but I say to every young person, well, every person that comes to me for representation, what's your day job? Right. What else do you do? Because you cannot anymore rely on a living as an actor. You just can't. You know, we, we look after an actor who um, was very bright and he went and did an MBA. Mm -hmm. And his MBA has turned him into um, a, an expert in charismatic leadership. He teaches all over the world people how to behave in business. And this week he's invented an immersive corporate game which is exactly like a corporate 
uh, exactly like an immersive theatre show with different rooms and actors working in it and doing it. And, of course, it's the first of its kind. And this week he's doing it. And that's, you know, one incredibly clever man Mm. um, who was, you know, in the West End for three years but was doing this at the same time. Mm -hmm. So there are... You can do all kinds of things. I know lots of people have really good relationships with big businesses and are receptionists who come and go, which is great. And sometimes people are very supportive. There's a lot of supply teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, some I know one person who's started making candles, and so every Christmas she's really busy selling candles. But I think know. it's the nature of any kind of creative and also freelance yeah. work. Um, people cre- increasingly say we live in a gig economy. Yeah, that is the way of the yeah. world. Lots of people have lots of strings to their bow. Yeah, they have to. Even all the way up to the top of the yeah. food chain, yeah. so to speak. Um, even Porf- Mark- Portfolio careers, right, that's exactly, what we call it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even Mark Wahlberg's gone on interviews many times talking about property development and owning yeah. restaurants and doing yeah. also and you know it's not like he's out of work exactly so exactly everybody does it yeah and I just and I do believe I mean, it's a, it's trite to say everybody can but I think everybody can yeah if you focus enough and and get around and learn enough read enough I mean knowledge is always power and that's what I've always said to youngsters the more you know the more you will learn and the more that will help you. And speaking of youngsters, yeah. we obviously don't just have young performers, but we deal a lot with their parents as well. Yes. And um, the thing about parents is that they often ask us, you know, we don't know anything about the industry. Yeah. They might not be performers yeah. or whatever themselves. Um, and I think they struggle often to prepare their children for what this industry will be like. Do you have any sort of advice that you would give parents specifically about Um, that? It depends, of course, who represents the child. If the parent is representing the child, then the parent has to be very strict with the child. If the child is sent sides to learn for a self-tape, then the parent has to make sure that the child learns them. The parent has to take also again it, it, you know that the parent has to actually read the instructions for the self tape so many times we send instructions to parents that says please shoot this in landscape not in portrait please do it against a plain background please do not read the stage directions just read the other lines Please make sure the child is off the book and please let us have it by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning via WeTransfer or on a downloadable Vimeo. Right. You'd be amazed. It's something we've focused on a lot. We have a whole podcast about self-taping. We have a whole video about self-taping, but we still get very similar questions, as you say, particularly about the landscape thing and sound issues, all sorts. I know. It is extraordinary. I, I am not very technical at all. I know how to do it. So I'm sure that you can. It's the thing about because we live in such a fast society, yes. they don't read properly. Again, back to the attention to detail. If you absolutely read it properly, it's like, you know, men never read the instructions for <laughs> putting things together. Yes. And women always do. Yes. You know, and I go, I have to turn this screw here and this and then I will release the so-and-so and my music will play whereas men just kind of get angry and They'll shove it, it about out. <laughs> yeah. you, you know you have to read the instructions absolutely it's attention to detail I've yeah. put together too many Ikea beds not it, to know exactly, exactly what that feels like exactly yeah yeah definitely <laughs> what about in terms of um, rejection I mean that's obviously such a huge part of being 
an actor is you will get rejected, you will face rejection, you won't always get feedback. Um, what's your view on that? We always ask for feedback. We mm-hmm. always ask for it. Um, and sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. What people, especially with the casting of children, is it is a jigsaw puzzle. The child either has to look like whoever's playing the parents or bear a resemblance to them. It has to fit in with who might be playing the other children in terms of height and colouring. The child also maybe is playing somebody who is playing a child version of of a grown-up, in which case they have to resemble them and have similar kind of mannerisms to them as well. So it's a jigsaw puzzle. What we say to children is the fact that we suggested you and that you were seen means you are good. And that's not why you didn't get it. You didn't get it because you weren't good enough and you didn't get it because you were not good. You were. You just didn't fit into their family, their look, their chemistry or whatever. So don't beat yourself up. Be really proud that you got this far. That's what we say to children and that seems to work. Yeah. We had a a little boy this week who has been for so many things, has been recalled for them all. And yesterday we got a wonderful call to say he and his mum are going to Morocco for a week in half term to film a big American series. And he's so thrilled. And he sent me a text actually last night. He's only 11. (laughs) Just made me sob about thanking us for having faith in him and that he will never let me down. Oh, that's so lovely. And that's so lovely. And it's so lovely. And, you know, he used to say, I'm so sorry you didn't get this, darling. It's no reason at all. He said, that's all right. I'll keep going. I'll keep going. And, you know, I've had others. In One boy who's now 17, who we used to call him Recall. I'm not going to say his name, but Recall. Uh -uh. And um, he actually told a casting director, "Um, I'm always recalled, you know, I never get it. (laughs) She said to me, I'm going to make sure this time he gets it. He did. And from then he's just gone on and on and on to great great. stuff. Yeah. But Um, it takes some time. It takes time. A big part of an actor's life will be not getting that part and potentially being in between jobs. Although I have to say we have a seven-year-old, he's now eight, who walked into us September a year ago mm-hmm. and I just looked at Sam, who's who works in, who runs the school with me, who's my partner in the school and an agent, and we just went, ooh. Three days later, we were able to put him up for a big, big television series. Mm. He went in four days after that. And he got the job and he's been working for a year in this big television series. He finished that and his mother said, I don't know what he's going to do. He's found his tribe. He's going to be bereft now that this is over. What's (laughs) going to happen to him? I said, it'll be all right. It'll be fine. A week later, he got a part in another series. Oh, amazing. So, you know, he's a very accomplished now, I think almost nine-year-old. And Mm -hmm. it's just, and it's great. So, and again, that was Sam and I both had exactly the same instinct. And we thought, this child, we call it an invisible tattoo on their forehead that says, I am an actor. Right. That's your kind of star quality idea. Yeah. So you believe in that then? I do. Just either something someone has or doesn't have? There's an indefinable something. Mm -hmm. There's a line in The Second Star is Born, the one with Judy Garland Mm -hmm. and James Mason, when he says, I don't know what it is, you have an indefinable something that I know is star quality or something like that. And, And it is, and I agree with him or the character, and that line has always stayed with me. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's true. I really do think it's true. And for those who maybe don't have the it 
actor. They can still have quite an amazing career. Of course they can. Do you think it's quite important that they know their casting or that they take up other skills or what is it well you never know your casting you You think yeah you can never know your casting you never know how people are going to think of you or look at you you can guess at what your casting is but you know i've known actresses who have slogged away for years you know doing kind of uh, selling things in markets doing a you know a season in rep doing uh, understudying a bigger name in the west end all of that and then suddenly aged 45 50 a television series comes along for which they are absolutely spot on they get the gig and for the next 25 years they become a household name and i can think of you know three people immediately that mm. that's happened to so um you're never too old to act. That's the wonderful thing. I've got a client who's 90. There you go. And he still works. We have a letter from the doctor <laughs> saying that he's fit to work. Yeah, <laughs> But he still works. You, that's the wonderful thing about this business is you don't have to retire either. Absolutely. I yeah. think that is a concern um, that we also get sometimes, which is the returning performer, someone yeah. who's taken a break. Yeah, and that's not- difficult. Yeah. Well, they often the question is, how do I reintroduce myself to the industry? They the way they should reintroduce themselves is by all means by trying to do student films. Mm-hmm. Uh, those that have a proper equity contract, because there is a proper equity student film rate, um, and the better student, uh, you know, Norwich University, I noticed recently are doing it. The NFTS, obviously. Um, what's the one in London in Ealing? What's it called? Metropolitan, I think. Yes. The Northern Film School. Mm-hmm. They all do them. They all go out on Spotlight and you can apply for them and that will help you get scenes to put together into a showreel. And again, a showreel does not have to be five minutes or ten minutes. A showreel is an uh, minute 30, two minutes, enough for a casting director to get a look at you, see what you can do, see what you look like, see what you sound like, because they don't have the time to wade through, you know, Lots 10 of minutes stuff, of, yeah. of, of, of showreels Absolutely. either. So I think that's really good. I, am I allowed to say I would hesitate to look at Mandy? I really disapprove of <laughs> Mandy, as it's now called. You can say that. <laughs> yeah, because the the jobs, they're trying to get people on the cheap without paying the right money and you don't know that they're covered properly, you don't know what their insurance is, you don't know that they're proper companies and it's just, it's dangerous. I always feel to do those kind of things. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. You have to look for work that's sensible, yes. that will actually help you in some way yeah. and will be worthwhile. We had a client who phoned and said, oh, I got this great gig on Mandy and it was for... um. What was it for? It was a soft drink. And our heart sank and said, do you realise that puts you out for Coca-Cola, for, you know, just anything else? And you've got a £1,000 and they can use this in perpetuity. Mm. How stupid are you? Why did you not run it past us? Right. You know, it makes no sense. comes back to the communication thing with your agent. You really have to communicate what's going on. We have to know everything. Yes. We really do. Yes. I want to ask you a couple of sort of quick fire mm. questions that are again some of our very common questions yep. that we get the first one is what should your headshot look like your headshot should engage i personally hate 
actor headshots. I hate profiles. I hate cheeks sucked in. I hate seriousness. I want a grin. I want a secret in your eyes and on your lips. That's what I want. I want engaging straight down the lens. I want to see the kind of person that I would like to have a cup of tea with, a cup of coffee with, invite to my house or into my rehearsal room. Very clear. <laughs> clear instructions. The next one is, is it okay for people to invite you, which you've said you like to be invited, yep. but how should they do that? They should do it on an email, a very brief email. Um, if they are going to do it on mail, then they have to make sure that they put the right postage on it. The number of times <laughs> I've paid pound fifty to the Royal Mail to have something that's addressed to me that's an invitation to see something, it really irritates me. Make sure that a large envelope is a large envelope and you've stamped it right or send a very brief email or I like the old postcard thing I think that that kind of communication is really good um, sometimes we can come sometimes we can't come sometimes it's a play I would rather stick pins in my eyes that see <laughs> um, and sometimes it's miles away from my office so that's difficult as well so you know we will look at everything and and also for us it depends on what we are missing in our client list as well yeah. what we're going to see that's another big consideration yeah, yeah. Should people train? Is that necessary? It used to be really necessary that people should train. Um, but in you know, the old days, there were five great drama schools. Um, some training is always good. Um, it's funny, I was talking to some casting directors of about my age um, at the weekend, or ex-casting directors and they were saying oh nobody needs to train anymore it's ridiculous oh nobody goes to drama school they've got to start as children if they start as children then they can go on and do all that stuff and they named kind of half a dozen actors who did start as children right and you know who are doing very well um a training is always good learning is always good it's the it's the knowledge is power thing i don't think that you necessarily have to do three years at drama school especially if you've done um, a BTEC in performing arts or you've done three years at university. I think the, the MA one-year graduate courses are very good. Um, but I also think that we have enough classes and workshops that are around us to, in order to be able to train as you're going along. I also think that training on the job, if you could get into a wonderful soap, you will learn. I mean, sometimes, you know, we've seen youngsters start in something like EastEnders and they could barely put one foot in front of the other. <laughs> but actually, kind of eight years later, they're the most sublime actor or actress. So, you know, I think... There's could, lots of ways to do there's it. There's lots of ways to do it, yes. And should you list every single workshop you've ever attended on your profile? No, not every single <laughs> workshop, no. The important ones, if you've done, um, for example... Um, a Shakespeare course at the Actor Centre and you had a wonderful director do it, you can put that on. Really, on your profile, you should have the jobs that you've done. Uh, if you've done any R&D, that's different from workshops. If you've done a research and development job in a theatre or a reading with a reputable director or company, then that sh should go on your Spotlight CV. But no, not, not necessarily, no. Just keep them going. Just keep them going so you know what you're doing. Keep those workshops going. That's what the Actors' Centre is for, for God's sake. Keep honing your craft. Absolutely. And you never, ever stop learning. And is it OK for people to keep asking you for representation if they've asked you once and you haven't responded or if they've asked you to see a show and you haven't been able to go 
when does it become pestering? It's just, interestingly, today, um, a young man sent me, uh, in September, a young man sent me a, uh, an email asking me, sending me his showreel and his headshots and asking me for advice. And I said, I'm really sorry, I don't have room to represent you. So then he wrote again and said, well, can you give me some advice? And I said, if I gave advice to every actor who wrote to me asking me for advice, I would not be able to look after the actors that I do look after. I'm really sorry. I really can't take on anybody else in your age group. Blow me down, he wrote again today, oh, no. with a whole with five new headshots. Oh, wow. All, you know, full clogging up the email and everything. Yeah. I haven't responded yet. I flagged it to, okay. to respond to. But... I think if somebody says no, you must say no unless you've got, a, you know, unless you've been hired at the Finborough to do a fabulous new play. Right. Then that, then great. Ask everybody to come. Right. So if you've got something new to show yeah. or something new to invite someone yeah. to, yeah. that's a good opportunity to write yeah, again. But, not but wait new, till then. Not new headshots. No. no. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. I've only got a couple more questions for you, Go Esther. On and more about you and your thoughts about the industry. Yeah. The first one I want to ask you is, what is the most satisfying part of your job? What is the most satisfying part of my job? Um, uh, this is difficult to explain, but it doesn't matter if it's in um, a rehearsal session on a Saturday morning with the children or if it is watching somebody in the theatre or in a fringe theatre or seeing something on television. If it is one of my babies, and be that whether they are seven or 45... <laughs> I get a lump in my throat and I want to cry. It's a kind of gut pride. And for me, that is the most satisfying thing, knowing that I spotted it, nurtured it and got it into the right place. That's a lovely answer. It's it? a very genuine okay. place that that comes Good. from, I think. And I do. I mean, I do. We have a 17-year-old boy who started with us when he was seven. I'm going to put this at his mother phoned and said, I met somebody at the cricket club who said you might be able to help. He's not very keen on cricket and he runs <laughs> around the house waving a ruler and with a, a scarf around his neck. Can you help? I said, yes, <laughs> that's a sword and a cloak. She said, ah, yeah, of course it is. So he came at seven. He's worked consistently. Um, he's now at college doing filmmaking and creative writing. And he's made a film on unconscious bias wow. that he's made for as a project for work, but we helped him make it. And he gave it to me yesterday to see, and it's a three-minute film, and I sobbed my way through all the three minutes of it because it was, just, it was wonderful. I was so proud of him. Yeah, so it's seeing that yeah. talent, whatever form it takes, yeah. and putting it in the right place. Absolutely, as you said. yeah. My last question for you then. Yeah. Everyone who enters this industry enters with a lot of hope and yes. with a desire to yes. work in it a long time. Yes. What is, in your opinion, the secret to that long and happy career in this industry? When you come into this business, you have to come in because you love it, not because you want to be rich and famous. Mm. Um, being rich and famous is really nice if it happens. But loving it, loving the storytelling, and that's something that I haven't really touched on, that Actually, every actor, producer, director, writer should want to be a storyteller and telling stories and keeping on telling stories, passing them along, passing them down, passing them sideways is the most important thing. And that's what you need to remember. It's not about fame or fortune. It's about history, about stories and about a passion for making an audience sit up 
and think and enjoy. I think. <laughs> does that make sense? It does. Yeah, okay. It's a beautiful note to end on. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Esther, so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Very welcome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Spotlight Podcast. If you like what we're doing, subscribe and you'll always receive our new episodes as they pop up. If there's anyone you'd like us to talk to or any questions we can answer for you on our podcast, just send us a message at questions at spotlight.com or on Twitter at Spotlight UK. 